Hey everyone, welcome to the Happy Flosser podcast. My name is Billy Lunt. I am your host, and I am here to talk to you about all things dental hygiene to support you on your journey through the dental hygiene program. Welcome, so glad to have you. Hey everyone. So in this episode, we will review some of the key points related to the immune system, how it responds to the development of those dental biofilm microcolonies in the oral cavity, and what happens when it initiates an immune system response. The role that the host plays in the treatment and management of disease is a huge factor. And sometimes we overlook the fact that we're dealing with a person who has individualized needs care and presentation in the clinical setting. So it's really important for us to think about the management and care of each patient individually. Sometimes we think that we can solve all the problems of our patients by treating their periodontal disease. And that's just not the case. So thinking about how each specific person's immune system responds to the treatment as well as the disease process is really an important factor that you have to consider when you're putting together care plans for your patient that you want to be effective right so our job is to help treat and manage periodontal disease and reduce caries risk when we are working with our patients, but we have to look at our patients as a whole person. And so that's what we're going to talk about in this episode, right? So the role of that host plays an important part in the treatment and the management of disease. And we also wanna keep in mind how oral health is directly connected to overall wellness. Are you looking for study sheets? I've created study sheets that cover the content of this episode. If you're interested or that's something that's going to help you on your learning journey, you can click the link listed right in the description of these show notes. Happy studying. Once that dental plaque biofilm has become well-developed, Remember, this is anywhere from 10 days to three weeks, according to your Wilkins textbook. There is an immune system response, so it initiates a response from your immune system. The immune system can respond in two different ways, right? You have acute infection, which is something that has a rapid onset, and the immune system responds to this type of infection with all its usual signs and symptoms. You have heat, swelling, redness, pain, etc. This state of acute infection can really cause limitations for your patients and loss of function is usually a side effect until the infection has been treated. What's good about acute infections is that the patients typically are forced to deal with an acute infection. Because of the pain and swelling and the limited function, they typically will seek immediate care because they're not able to get themselves out of pain and they're not able to function properly. So they typically will seek out treatment right away. That's your benefit of acute infection. Now a chronic infection has a longer and slower consideration and presentation. The bacterial load has a persisted chronic infection for a longer duration. 
Now the problem, which ends up being a side effect, is that there are no symptoms like you see with an acute infection. So your patient may be unaware that there's even a bacterial load causing an immune system response. Because of this, patients remain unaware that the disease is even present, and even worse, that the disease is progressing in their body or in their mouth. Consider the complex anatomy of dental plaque biofilm. Remember that the establishment of the microcolonies contains a complex network of bacteria, and there can be up to 500 different species of microbes within that biofilm, which makes them more resistant to things like antimicrobials and antibiotic. They're stronger together, right? The mature biofilm will stimulate an immune system response once those late colonizers have stabilized and the microcolony is capable of invading the tissue. The periodontal pathogens that are located in the subgingival areas are capable of penetrating the epithelium and they end up invading the underlying connective tissue. Periodontal disease is seen as a chronic infection where there is little or no pain with a gradual destruction as a result of the host's inability to resolve the infection. The immune system continually goes through a cycle of persistent stimulation and recovery, causing irreparable damage over time if it's not treated, which is common with periodontal disease. I explain it like this to patients. Your body senses that there's active infection going on in the tissue. It sends little troops from your immune system to invade and recover the tissue. It drops little bombs in the area, and as a result, those bombs destroy the attached gingiva and the underlying periodontal ligament and bone. So your body's own way of defending yourself against the infection actually causes further advancement of the disease. This is how I explain it to patients. Now, some diseases associated with chronic inflammation include things like type 2 diabetes, asthma, heart disease, Crohn's disease, and periodontal disease. As in the case with most chronic infections, they are episodic in nature and can go through periods of remission or persistent decline and severity changes. It's good for you to understand the basic cycle of the process that the host cycles through as a result of chronic inflammation. It's a key step for you as a dental hygienist at developing appropriate treatment plans for your patients. There is a signal sent to your immune system which results in a buildup of macrophages. These macrophages attack the microorganisms and continue to respond due to the release of, you guessed it, leukocytes. Now there are different types of leukocytes. There are granulocytes, which are neutrophils, eosinophils, and basophils. Monocytes and lymphocytes are the T cells and B cells, which we'll talk about. Polymorphonuclear leukocytes are the first line of defense in the infection process. These are the neutrophils who destroy the bacteria. And this is a really short process. The neutrophils die off kind of quick when they become overloaded with bacteria. The polymorphonuclear leukocytes, they contain many strong bacteriocidal enzymes called lysosomes. And the polymorphonuclear leukocytes are very effective at destroying the pathogens. 
The macrophages arrive after the leukocytes and they function to surround and destroy the bacteria. The macrophages can be seen in most situations where there's chronic inflammation involving tissue destruction. The lymphocytes are small white blood cells, T and B. The T lymphocytes intensify and ramp up the responses of other cells involved with the fight against the bacteria. The T cells produce cytokines, which in turn continue the cycle of stimulating the immune system response. Now the B lymphocytes secrete the antibodies and they have memory to connect information to the pathogens and have more of a rapid response on repeat exposure to those same pathogens. So they have memory, which is helpful for them. These antibodies are called immunoglobulins. These immunoglobulins can be divided into five main categories. Immunoglobulin A, IgA, this antibody is the last one to appear in childhood. Immunoglobulin D, IgD, has very little significance in immunological defenses. Immunoglobulin E, IgE, and immunoglobulin G, IgG. IgG is the most prevalent and abundant immunoglobulin. Immunoglobulin M, IgM, is an antibody that activates complement. Now the complement system is a group of proteins that circulates in the bloodstream and it works to kill bacteria by puncturing the cell membranes or facilitating phagocytosis of bacteria. The most important action of the complement system is to capture and destroy bacteria. This process is called opsonization of pathogens. The complement components coat the surface of the bacteria, which allows the phagocyte to identify and destroy the bacteria, right? Leukocytes release inflammatory mediators. Think about what a mediator does. These inflammatory mediators end up causing a perpetual loop of inflammatory response, which in turn causes the destruction of the gingival tissue, the periodontal ligament, and the surrounding alveolar bone. I'm sure the mediators do not intend to do that, but that's the result. Now I wanna talk about C-reactive proteins with you because these guys are pretty significant in terms of the relationship between periodontal disease and other systemic conditions. Serum C-reactive proteins are a plasma protein that's typically seen when the body's immune system is responding to some kind of infection or inflammation. C-reactive protein is produced in the liver and it discovers foreign pathogens in the body. The result, once they discover these foreign pathogens, is an increased production of C-reactive proteins. And this can be pretty significant production. It's important to note that C-reactive proteins activate platelet adhesion and also cytokines, which in turn stimulate those leukocytes to release oxygen radicals. When considering the etiology of periodontal disease, it's important to know that the dental plaque biofilm that makes up the microbiome is not the same structure in a patient who presents with gingivitis versus the microbiome of a patient with periodontitis. There is a shift to gram-negative species in our periodontal patient's microbiome. And these gram-negative anaerobic species include Porphyrmonas gingivalis, Tanarella forsythia, Treponema denticola, 
and Phredobacterum species. I want you to think about some of the major systemic chronic infections and diseases that are present in most of our populations here in the United States. These are the patients that you will be treating in the clinical setting. Now, it is not uncommon for a dental hygienist to discover elevated blood pressure in a patient who is unaware that they have a problem or elevated glucose levels during the assessment phase of our patient treatment. Maybe when you're doing the oral cancer screening, you discover something that might indicate uh, that your patient has a nutritional deficiency. These are examples of considerations that you have to incorporate into your treatment and think about for your patient's level of risk and also how they will respond to their treatment needs. Consider what we know about diabetes and its association with poor wound healing. Your patient who has diabetes is not going to respond to your periodontal treatment the way a healthy patient, otherwise healthy patient, would respond. That's an example. The other thing is that there's a bi-directional connection between periodontal disease and your diabetic patient and the caries risk assessment that's associated with your diabetic patient. Your diabetic patient is more prone to periodontal disease because they succumb to that continued loop of chronic infection going on in their mouth and they lose that battle. The other research that's out there indicates that patients with periodontal disease have a harder time controlling their glycemic index. So there's a lot of considerations when you have patients who present in your chair with some of these systemic problems and how you are going to manage their periodontal disease and their caries risk so that you can help them have better outcomes. Think about the increased risk of medical emergencies with our patients who reside in the ASA3 category. Those are also considerations you're going to alter the type of care and the type of procedures that you recommend for your treatment based on some of their systemic conditions and how you think they will respond. When you're considering host response, it's important to keep in mind that not all of your patients are going to respond to treatment in the same way. Not all of our patients are going to have the same response to the length of time between visits. It's important for you to help develop an individualized balance point for each patient that you treat. When you are treating a patient for periodontal infection, you wanna figure out their balance point. What is the appropriate length of time that this patient can go between their dental care visits and still maintain stability of their periodontal disease? Can they put their periodontal disease in remission with a certain length of time? What is that individualized length of time for that particular patient? You don't wanna put everyone in a cookie cutter situation. You don't want to put a patient at risk of having a recurrence of disease because you've put them out too far and created the wrong interval of recare for that patient. So you wanna make sure that you are considering 
how your patient, the host, responds to the pathogens in their mouth as well as the treatment plans that are provided with the ultimate goal to maintaining their periodontal disease so that they do not have a recurrence and an advancement of that disease. These are things that you have to consider when you're treating your patients. During the assessment phase of our appointments with our patients, we take the time to gather lots of information about our patient that helps us to develop a really thorough understanding of our patient's level of risk to both periodontal disease and caries risk. Now, understanding our patient's level of risk allows us as a clinician to identify specific host-related conditions that may impact our treatment outcomes. One of the most common risk assessment tools used in recent years is a web-based program called Previsor. This program allows clinicians to plug in specific information about our individual patients and receive an evidence-based risk score of our patient's likelihood of getting oral disease. What's really nice about Previsor is that it provides you with your patient's specific risk score based on their host risk factors, as well as the clinical observations in the oral cavity. A numerical score is provided, which allows clinicians as well as patients and front desk people and all the people involved with the patient to understand the raw score. Numbers make sense to people. And so for patients to understand what their risk factor number is, it provides an opportunity to have clear understanding of where they are on their risk level. It's important for us as clinicians to understand that our patients have some risks that can be modified and some risks that can't be modified. Because we know that periodontal pathogenic microorganisms have patient-specific outcomes on the disease severity, we cannot underestimate the role that the host plays in the disease manifestation and progression. Some of those modifiable risk factors include things like smoking, obesity, diabetes, excessive alcohol use, medications, and diet. Now, these risk factors are considered modifiable and require collaboration between dental and medical providers in order to support our patients' changes in their behavior and outcomes. Now, non-modifiable risk factors are things like genetics, host response to bacteria, osteoporosis, age, and tooth alignment. Now, these risk factors create additional challenges to the development of periodontal disease, which have very little ability to be modified to change outcomes. It's important for the clinician to really consider what things we can modify in order to create stability in the dentition and what things are beyond our control when we're putting care plans together to treat our patients. Thanks for listening today. I hope this episode was thought provoking and really helps you understand all the challenges that you face when you're providing treatment to your host, which is the patient. Join me next time where we will be discussing pain management 
And we're just going to go over the basics of pain management and some of the strategies at helping ease your patient's fears about dental treatment. I hope you join me. I would invite you to ask any questions at all that you need answered. Sometimes questions come up when you're listening to this podcast. If you have a question, most likely someone else has the very same question. I'd be happy to answer it and would probably share it in a future podcast.